0: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatou And I'm Anne Friedman. We have an incredible poet on the show today.
1: We have a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, and also like kind of the poet president, the, the reigning U.S. Poet Laureate, yeah. uh, Tracy K. Smith is here.
0: Friedman. Hello. Hello. I haven't tried my tea hung on yet, so we can't talk about that. Wow. I know that you were going to check in, but we just can't check in. You know, thank you for holding me,
1: holding you accountable. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I just really want to talk about it. I know. Well,
1: we'll get there next week. Don't worry. Okay. Um, speaking of poetry. <laughs> speaking of Cisco's The Thong Song. S-
0: speaking, of, speaking of great American poets.
1: Yes. Um. This transition.
0: <laughs> Queen of transitions. Queen of transitions. One day I will become good at transitions. Ugh. We have an incredible poet on the show today. We have a Pulitzer
1: Prize winning poet. And also, like, kind
0: of the poet president, the, the reigning the reigning U.S. poet laureate, yeah. uh, Tracy K. Smith is here. Amazing. I am very excited about this. Uh, recently, when I looked in my life, I was like, oh, the poets are back, man. Like, <laughs> they're just... Like, I don't mean, like, in the universe. I mean, like, in my own life. I think in college, I knew, like, one person who was maybe a poet, and, like, now fully, like... Everybody's a poet. Oh, you mean, like socially in your yes, life, poets socially are trending in my life. Like <laughs> poets are trending. In the Twitter sidebar of my life, poetry is trending. One, it makes me really happy because I do like poetry. and when in French school, at least, there was like a strong emphasis on memorizing poetry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when we're growing up. and for years, this has been my resolution to be like, I, like every year I learn one poem. Like, I memorized one poem, and I was like, I like this. This is how I keep the Alzheimer's at bay. Do you want to read? tell us the poem you have memorized right I now? I won't tell you the poem that I'm memorizing this year because I haven't picked it yet. The thing about like having poets in your life is that, one... As a population of people who like works with a specific kind of word, I find that generally they have a better sense of humor than most people. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Wait, precision of language leads to better jokes. precision of language Mm -hmm. leads to like much better jokes. But also like a thing that I had not fully appreciated for a long time, and it's because like I am fully an idiot, it is hard making a living as a poet. I think that like I knew that, but like you don't fully understand that until it's like the people in your world and I watch like amazing people make amazing work and realize how the marketplace of ideas is very unkind to this right, kind of Right, not a of lot of labor. poets on
1: the Forbes 500. Right,
0: you know, and I'm like, put all the, poems on the, <laughs> all the poets on the Forbes 500. Right, right, right. Like, are you kidding me? I'm like, they're rich in words and ideas. Like, you people are wild. But also, it has just been, like, a great source of joy in my life to have people who enjoy poetry.
1: It's true, and I feel like the popular conversation around poetry at least like in the like the arts and leisure section of the new york times or wherever venues that are kind of supposed to be about what's happening in arts and culture more generally it's like instagram and poetry like i feel like that is Mm -hmm. like the 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 vector for a lot of conversations about that the idea that this is a new thing that people are using technology to find and read poets
0: and i'm like and maybe it is but also i'm like like tumblr is powering like A new kind of poetry (laughs) yeah or like whatever and i'm like
1: no actually that's just like how people kind of get access to almost every art form now is like social media and it's like not
0: i don't know anyway with certain things that like have been locked in the academic Mm. ivory tower there is a release in being like oh we can be very democratic about this you know like calling somebody a twitter poet or an instagram poet is like people say that very dismissively of course like it's always dismissive I really chafe at that and I really don't like it because it goes back to the basic bitch conversation, you know, mm. of like who is consuming this. But for me, the reason that I appreciate it, and I will be honest in saying that, like, I was also dismissive of it in the beginning, you know, where I was like, what's going on here? Like, everybody is writing in lowercase. Like, Lowercase, you know, like, too many commas, and right, you're a poet. Like, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of, like, Instagram EE e. Cummings happening here. Once you like take the cynicism away, I was like, oh, wow, I actually um, I've curated an Instagram feed for myself where every day I'm confronted with beautiful words and beautiful feelings that I have to sit with. I like that. But I also like fully realize that a lot of the people who get dismissed as Instagram poets are mostly women and people of color. Is it an accident that those are the same people that are generally not recognized in the academic uh, sense of like who gets to be a like fancy poet and so that's a question that I struggle with a 100%, lot and I wrestle yeah. with. And so, you know, and generally I just think that it's good to be like 90% uh, less dismissive of things that you don't know a lot about mm-hmm. and just like fully learn about them. Getting poetry on Instagram from women and people of color has been like, I'm like, that's been very healing for me and I like it. Yeah. And I have to say that like the experience of reading poetry either
1: on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, whatever, or like in my inbox, like I get an amazing poem a day email that has honestly changed my
0: morning email routine. You changed this the one of the best gifts you gave me. Um, was forwarding one of those emails to me. Uh, we will link
1: to it in the show notes, but it is curated by someone named Matthew Ogle, and I really can't tell you how nice it is to slow down. So both when I come across a poem in like my Instagram feed and when I open this email every morning being like you know it's never that many words cumulatively Mm -hmm. but just being like I'm gonna think a little bit harder about these words than I do you know scanning headlines or like reading Mm -hmm. an email that's about something work-wise it really brings a pause into my day that I I find invaluable
0: I agree um let's listen to you talk to Tracy K Smith
1: Tracy, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: I want to start at your beginning with poetry because um, I think that it is one of those art forms that maybe if people are not introduced young, they can find kind of intimidating.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I have young children, and I see that poetry is something that they naturally feel comfortable with. And sometimes I talk to them, and I feel like they're speaking in in poetry. <laughs> um, but I think something happens around probably junior high or high school where anxiety becomes a part of that process. Somehow I missed that, but I think it's because I wasn't really taught poetry in school in, in Really uh, memorable, at least way. So I wasn't, I wasn't traumatized. <laughs> um, but I lived in a house where, you know, when I was bored, I was encouraged to pick up a book and read. And so often, what would happened was I would be kind of carried away by the sounds of words, by surprising ways of looking at things. And so poetry always felt kind of like a something playful to me. I got serious about writing poems when I was a sophomore at Harvard, and I became aware of the many living poets working in English, many African-American poets whose work I'd never seen, and the many peers at my school who were my age and also thinking very seriously about becoming poets. It seemed like a really exciting proposition.
1: Do you remember there being a moment or like a particular peer or writer where you felt that switch and were like, oh, I want to get serious about this and practice it?
2: Well, I remember going, I was already writing poems, already uh, interested in taking poetry workshops, though I don't think I had taken my first one by that point. But I was a sophomore at Harvard, and I went to hear Kevin Young give a reading. He was a student. He was going to be graduating, and he had written a creative thesis of poems. And so I went to hear him read, and I thought, oh, wow, this is the real thing. And he's young, just like me, but he's he seems as large and as passionate as the writers that I admire out in the world or in history, and so I think I got this real sense of actual possibility and um, a kind of hope or inspiration that seemed reachable because he was a friend. Mm.
1: I love that. Like the idea that it's not just about someone you admire you know, someone, some work you admire by someone who feels far away, maybe, or like, you know, unapproachable genius, but like someone you're also in community
2: with being so powerful. Yeah, I think that's really necessary. I think it's probably necessary for most pursuits. But I think the arts are, it's especially true. And maybe that's because it seems like magic. When you see a work of art, you think, oh, this came out fully formed from somebody who is probably, You know, well into their life and is reflecting in some way or just has this natural genius. But to recognize that this is something that a young person or a person who's not so unlike you is capable of means there are fewer steps that you need to take before that possibility might be real for you. And I think that made a big difference for me. I think it made me more adamant about what I knew I wanted to do. And when it's art you hear a lot of well-meaning voices who say oh maybe that's not what you should th- try and choose for your career maybe that should just be a hobby um so it's important to have those those models in all stages i think
1: yeah i was actually about to ask you about that because i went to journalism school where like a lot of my peers were people who in their heart of hearts wanted to be novelists or something like that but had been mm-hmm. you know had this idea that oh you know i need something that is like on the life board game kind of career yeah. <laughs> that is not, uh-huh. that is not artists. And I'm I'm wondering if you, you know, how you responded to some of that criticism or some of that feedback I'm sure you got about poetry as not just, you know, an artistic pursuit or a creative passion, but a livelihood.
2: Yeah. I, uh, I knew that the people telling me to rethink my choices loved me. And so they're advice came from a place of love and worry you know it was my parents mostly and, <laughs> and older <laughs> Naturally. siblings um but i also thank god i had examples of people who were making a life at poetry i had my teachers i had all the many poets whose work i been reading and who had gone to hear, read and talk about their work. And then I I had the peers who I said, oh, well, Kevin Young is going to graduate school. That's what he's doing after this. And so that's what somebody who wants to be a poet does. You go to graduate school and and then from there you, you publish a book. And so I had this, um, you know, like kind of a step-by-step ma- roadmap that I had pieced together from the different examples. And somehow that bolstered my sense of certainty and I think my stubbornness and I always tell my students you have to be willing to be a little bit stubborn about what what's important to you because there will be people who don't see it the way you see it and in an attempt to help you what they might do is attempt to dissuade you.
1: Mm. Yeah it's very it can be very difficult I think uh, for everyone starting out in their professional lives but particularly for people who want to make a living as artists to know who to listen to and like, what is a viable model? I think that's, um, that's a very, that's a very tough thing to kind of hear objectively described versus like just living through.
2: And it's a gamble in some ways too, because it's not like you're, you're following a path where everything, including your first job is going to be mapped out, which, you know, medicine feels safe because we see how people progress down that path with, with relative ease or safety. There were some rough years <laughs> that I that I endured, and now I think I needed them in order to really become an artist because it changed my relationship to to life and reality, and it heightened the urgency um, that characterized the thinking that I was doing. But it's, it's a choice that that needs to be thought through.
1: How has your relationship with poetry changed? you know, as you've gone deeper into it as a career. I mean, I think about this a lot, about things that are driven by passion or self-expression. Um, you know, when, that, when it also becomes your livelihood, I think that there is some compartmentalizing that inevitably has to happen. And I'm wondering, um, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe this is a long-winded way of saying, like, what poetry do you keep for you? Or how do you keep the spark mm-hmm. alive with your, with, your, with
2: your passion for it? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. Um, in some ways I feel really lucky because I haven't felt the need to rush to produce more books. Um, which I know is one of the things that, that some writers feel, you know, I've got to publish another book so I can maybe get this job or so that maybe I'll, I'll get this other advance that can sustain this practice that I have. And, um, Sometimes you you make sacrifices in in the interest of practicality. I like to be able to take my time with new work and let it come from what for me feels like a place of urgency and to live with it for a little while so that I can decide whether I stand by it. And I know that not everybody has that luxury. I think one of the great things about having become professional and for poets that often means teaching, having a faculty position somewhere, is that I've been pushed to read much more widely than I normally might have if I were just reading based on my own taste. Um, I've been pushed to codify my ideas about the art form that I practice simply so that I can teach it to students and say, well, these are are some formal concerns. These are craft-based concerns. These are thematic and social concerns that we can talk about in relationship to what you're seeking to do. And somehow that's expanded my own sense of my own artistic vocabulary. And I think it's fed me to commit to nurturing young talent because it means that I have, um, I don't know, those muscles are more honed and I can turn them toward my own work and nurturing the, the new questions that I have as a person and an artist so, for me, I feel like it's been good. I have an optimistic view of what professionalism means. Um, but I also I also, you know, I'm linked to an institution that makes it easy for me to take my time.
1: right? It's interesting, you know, hearing you talk about that, I've been thinking about um, the the body of your work that is poetry about, you know, space and science and the physical world, and you know, and how we're really taught that art and science are Two separate areas of inquiry or two separate modes. And then hearing you talk a little bit about finding a language for or like structures for or breaking down, like, you know, trying to explain what it is you love about a poem or kind of demystifying the art part of it and maybe getting a little bit more, not like scientific method about a poem, but like maybe there's some equivalency there. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about. Art and science, and, and whether whether that t- rings true to you, that they're really that separate.
2: <laughs> well, I, I mean, my hope is that these are different languages that are in pursuit of what could be compatible or similar questions. And they are questions that could be pursued quantitatively and logically. And there are questions that can be pursued by means of the imagination and all the different things that are connected to that. And because I lack the quantitative (laughs) reasoning skills, the imagination is the route that I, I have access to. So, you know, reading about new scientific discovery or reading the beautiful ways that scientists describe their own process, um, the beautiful metaphors that they employ in order to make something that's highly specialized, um, understandable to a general audience. All of that, I think, feeds my imagination in ways that, you know, I've I've kind of run with in in earlier work. Um, And I think there is something true to thinking that art is if not a science, it's a discipline. And sometimes I'm asked, well, how can you teach writing? But we teach dance, (laughs) we teach painting, and we don't have as much of a quandary around those kinds of pursuits. I think that teaching students to move around with more skill and mindfulness within language is something that can be easily done. It can mean the difference between... A really talented student struggling to kind of get off the ground to you know kind of like invent the wheel in each successive poem, and helping that student get um, familiar with a framework that can allow the the genius that they have to to move forward in more uh, powerful ways.
1: Do you think the same is true for readers of poetry, that you can be taught to move around in language as a consumer or like as a reading participant in a poem?
2: Oh, I think definitely. And one of the first steps is being untaught all of the fear and anxiety that comes on when we think, oh, there's a message to this poem. (laughs) This is a symbol for something that's buried at the center of this poem. Uh, There's a, a single answer to the question of this poem. Right, can I solve the poem? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How can I, like, how how much time will it take me to solve this? Um, When in reality, a poem is an invitation to participate in a process. And we have the tools at our disposal. We have, you know, a sense of sound, rhythm, movement, music. We have the ability to associate between seemingly different disparate things, and we do it all the time. We do it every time we sleep and have a dream, where one person and one context bump up against other people and other contexts that don't make logical sense, but that speak to us and have a dramatic effect upon us in the context of a dream. I think poems take advantage of a similar process. And there are other things that poems do, too, that we can respond to viscerally without having the name for what that reaction is based in. Mm. The name can come and we can talk about it in those terms, but we don't have to in order to, to appreciate it. So I think we can be taught to relax and <laughs> respond to the things that are happening in a poem.
1: Do you see that as um, part of your job uh, in the poet laureate role? And maybe you can talk a little bit about, like, you know, what does it mean to accept that title and, and what, what does that entail?
2: Oh yeah. I can definitely talk about, you know, trying to alleviate anxiety. (laughs) That's one of the, (laughs) it's not part of the job description, but it's something that I feel passionately about uh, because I meet so many people. And ever since I started calling myself a poet, I've met people who say, Oh, I'm afraid of poetry or that's not me. Or I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't get that. And I think you do, but there's something that that is keeping you from recognizing that. So, that's been a part of what I've been doing on the road. Uh, I've been reading the poems of other American poets and having conversations with strangers in a room about what they hear and notice. And it's amazing how far those conversations can take us into, you know, people's private experiences, their memories, their hopes, the, the associations that the poems activate for them. And it's a really beautiful way of, um, I think, kind of being alive together. It also makes us mindful of the fact that poems are about community because someone is talking to you and hoping that you listen. Mm. So that, that's been, I guess, kind of one of my chief, chief goals as Poet Laureate.
1: Right. Delivering the invitations to participate in the process that is a poem.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: How, I mean, does someone just call you out of the blue and be like, hey, you want this job? Like, how how, do, how does one become yeah. a Poet Laureate?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's one of those mysterious things where you are notified. You have been chosen. Would you like to to assume this responsibility? And I had to kind of think for a minute because I've grown up watching Poets Laureate do great things. And I thought, what could I bring to this? What could I do? And then ultimately, I got excited about the prospect of bringing people to this thing that, to me, seems deeply human and deeply natural and and also necessary. I think poems restore us to our large, original selves, and there's so much in our society that kind of chips away at that and says, no, no, you're small, you fit into this category, and this is what you think because this is what people like you think. Poems give us a, a reason to say, no, that's not true
1: so who, I mean, like truly though, who is there a body of people that picks you? I mean, I I know, I don't mean to get like super basic and mechanical, but I'm always so curious about embodying a role like this. There's a statement probably about your work or your track record as a convener or like an invitation deliverer where (laughs) there must be some people who were like, we thought about who would be the right voice for this moment. And they thought of you. And I'm curious about, I can't be like bureaucrats, right? I'm so curious.
2: (laughs) It's a, Special group. Um, so the decision comes down to the Librarian of Congress. So ah. right now it's Dr. Carla Hayden, um, but she's got a staff of people who are working to give her suggestions. Um, there's a Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress that that takes that responsibility on. That's... It's mysterious, <laughs> but I, I understand there is a, there is a system behind it.
1: Sure, and I'm curious about you know audiences for different things. I'm curious yeah. as poet laureate, if you're like, wow, just all of America, <laughs> that's who I'm speaking <laughs> to. Or like, how, do you, how do you think about that aspect of your job? And like, who are you trying to
2: reach specifically? Yeah, that is a good question. And I, I'm glad I didn't start thinking in those terms, <laughs> <When> I, <laughs> you know, because I think it would be overwhelming. But when I reflect on what I've done, what I'm doing, and how I think I'm I'm not thinking in the way that I do in a classroom of student poets. And I'm not thinking precisely in the way that I think or talk when I'm talking to other poets. You know, it's not uh, shop talk and it's not an audience that I, you know, know has a demonstrated passion for this thing. So what I'm trying to do is to say... Why do I think poetry is important for everybody, even if they're not going to become poets? And what are the poems that seem to be um, offering the most accessible invitations to what might be a new way of thinking and listening? And I start with those. But then I think, well, if that excites you, then maybe you'd want to take another step. And here's a poem that uses language differently. It's not quite so straightforward, but it speaks in terms of you know sound or in terms of images that we can readily relate to, but that are not strung along in familiar sentences. And so I think what I've been been trying to do is to be you know almost suggest there's a there's a, a gateway <laughs> that's right here, and it starts with maybe a poem like this, and then it's populated with other approaches and and Uh, possibilities within language I'm always aware that there is somebody in the audience who might feel a little rusty or as I've said a little apprehensive and so I'm also really eager to emphasize the fact that this should not be work this is about receiving something almost in the way that we we listen to a song without anxiety and we talk about what the song makes us hear and see and feel and think
1: I'm curious if there are particular poems that um, m- maybe like you have relied on in the recent past as an invitation or a gateway.
2: Well, I put together a little anthology in my first year as Poet Laureate called American Journal, 50 Poems for Our Time. And that's what I've been taking on the road with me this past year and giving out. The Library of Congress has generously bought copies to give to everybody at these events. And so there are some poems that I I kind of often will start with. One is the very first poem in the book, which is called Second Estrangement. And it's by Aracely Skermay, who is a poet of um, Eritrean and Puerto Rican descent. It speaks to you as if you are a you. It begins, raise your hand, uh, those of you who have been a child lost in a market or a mall. And suddenly I hear myself in the first line because I've been a child. I want to raise my hand. I hear myself in the second line because I've been lost before. And suddenly, without realizing it too much, I'm in this poem, and I'm walking along a speaker who's who's guiding me through an experience. So that's an exciting poem because anybody seems, you know, ready to to respond. And then there's some poems that topically also seem useful. Um, poems about family. Uh, So there's a poem in the book by Natalie Diaz called My Brother at 3 a.m. And it's a family story about kind of a harrowing scene where a mother and son and another sibling are kind of in the presence of this um, addiction-based drama. The poem is very clear. It uses repetition, and it... um, it draws you in in a really emphatic way as well. It's easy to talk about; those poems kind of lay the groundwork for some of the poems that that are surprising in in other ways.
1: Right, and and talk about um, the the audiences that you're typically in front of. I mean, are you going to libraries?
2: Who are the people you're meeting? I've been going lots of different types of places. Uh, libraries are definitely um, definitely a place that I tend to visit when I when I when I go to different communities, because they're kind of a lifeline, especially in a small community. A, li- a library is a community nexus point, and so there are families, there are different generations, and book lovers in one way or another. But I've also gone into some really specialized settings, like addiction rehab centers or retirement homes or even um, prisons and detention centers. And there you have a real mix, people who remember poetry, love poetry, don't have anything to do with poetry. And so what we hear is responses that have to do with, wow, I'm surprised this poem speaks to my experience of this place in this way, uh, which is inevitably, similar to and different from other people's. And so suddenly we have a kind of like a call and response that that ha- begins to happen around each poem.
1: Right. I mean, and that that particular element of, oh, I'm surprised at the similarity here, feels at least to me to be especially important in this political moment. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about being the poet laureate during this presidency in particular. I know you have not been the poet laureate for, under other presidencies, but, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, you know, for me, like so much of your work addresses injustice or issues that I think are very much at the forefront and in the headlines right now. And not that um, I think a poet laureate should necessarily be, you know, an activist or a newsy spokesperson, but I have to imagine that what's happening in the world informs some of the choices you make related to your position
2: hmm Well, I think it's a really good time for poetry. And it's exciting to be able to say to others, no, no, you do need this. You do need this in your life. And I just thinking about myself, I turn to the page when I have a question, a fear, an anxiety, or a wish. And this is a time when that's full of all of those things in, in every direction. And it's exciting to be able to say, here's a poem that invites us to interrogate our relationship to this situation. Let's 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 do that together. I feel like language is something that we should always be mindful of and I feel like it's not it's not even an, an administration but I think it's the the world that we live in that's saying, "Oh no, no, you don't have to sort through the intricacies of the grammar or word choice here, just say this, click on this, this is what you mean. And so I feel like the 21st century has brought with it a whole host of invitations to let go of our thought process, let go of the rigor and the singularity of our unique perspectives. And I think that's dangerous for many reasons. And, you know, a poem kind of, it's almost like a a little bit of exercise that says words matter and the same old words aren't really going to be appropriate for you in your specific situation. So let's do the work to get to what it would take to tell you what it feels like to be you. I think that can never be overvalued.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's interesting. We are really living in an era of rhetorical shortcuts where it's like the leap from this word signals, X, Y, Z about intention without really thinking about on either side, whether using it or receiving it. um, What, what has gone into that phrasing is something that I've been thinking about. There was like an obnoxious drunk man in a bar recently who used the term snowflake when he was like going off on something. And I was like, wow, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like, it's really interesting that that word, which might've seemed to me kind of like Poetic fifteen years ago right. to talk about a concept is like is so is so politically loaded, and I'm like, oh, this tells me all these things about you, and they may or may not have been true, right? But like when I heard that mm. word, I was like, I think I know something more about you now.
2: Yeah, that's the thing that really scares me. All, all of the shorthands, even the little shorthands that have started popping up for me in my email, mm-hmm. where I could either click on the prefabricated reply, I hate that, or I that. could just take the time to <laughs> write it out. Yeah. All of this tells me that there is this urge coming from someplace, inviting us to think of others as something that needs to be processed out of our way or processed so that we can be sure of who and what we're dealing with or who and what we're trying to persuade to our opinion. And I think it it's... Um, it's the opposite of the empathy and compassion that probably could go a long way toward solving some of the problems that we're we're in the midst of right now. I find it frightening and, and dehumanizing that um, the options available to me are I can do the default ignoring of other people. That has been validated by advertising and by, you know, all of the the shorthand stuff in our world. Or I could slow down and say, oh, actually, this is a person. I could actually choose to see and consider and maybe even be changed or surprised by. Um, I hate that there are so many more voices telling us, just process them, just move past. You need to get what you want. You need to get where you're already late to be. And um, I think it's dangerous.
1: Hmm. To that end, I would love to hear you talk about a poem that, that stopped you or, you know, made you reconsider maybe like a rhetorical track that you had been on or something like that recently? I mean, it doesn't have to be like the best poem you read of the last six months kind of thing. But like, you know, in the past week or two weeks, what's something that uh-huh. gave you pause?
2: Oh, well, I've, I've been working on episodes for um, the slowdown, my podcast, mm-hmm. which is great, because it means every day I get to stop and say, I want to think deeply or just intentionally about life and how this poem speaks to it so there's a a poem that um, came up recently called proximities by a poet named leah papura it begins a man walks into a cafe but it's not a joke proximities a man walks into a coffee shop but it's not a joke i bought coffee there last summer small with milk It's never a joke to walk in or out of a shop unharmed. It's easy to forget you aren't a person being shot at. I'm not. I wasn't, though I was there last summer. Not shot at, and I never knew it. Did not once think it. Thinking it now, the moment thins, it shears, and I move back to other coffee shops where I never fell or bled, and then I sit for a while with my regular cup and feel things collapse or go on. I can't tell. We live at such a, a great proximity to danger and to violence and to terror. Um, it's a quiet poem that uses conversational language to remind me that, um, you know, it's important to be grateful. And I think it's also a poem of grief you know, very quietly under the surface for all the moments when people are not safe.
1: Tracy, thank you so much for being on Call Your Girlfriend.
2: Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Tracy K. Smith is the author of many books, um, most recently the collection of poems Wade in the Water. And she also hosts the Slowdown podcast, which uh, you heard her mention, that is all about seeing the world through poetry. Um, And if you want a taste of what she is loving and reading in poetry right now, you can check out American Journal, 50 Poems for Our Time, which she edited.
0: Um, Who are some poets that you are enjoying right now? It's like a
1: funny question because like I, maybe I'm like, wow, now I'm like thinking about I rely heavily on like other people curating poetry for mm-hmm. me in real time. I have a Nikki Giovanni collection that yes. I got last year. Yes. Um, like one of her later, like a later collection, I want to say it's from the, the late 90s that is about like what was happening in the, in the political moment in Mm -hmm. the U S like there's a very embarrassing poem of her defending Bill Clinton. Um, but, but a lot of it is also about like her health and is kind of like about the body and like the frailty of the body. And, um, the collection is called Nikki Giovanni blues for all the changes. I love
0: that. What about you? I have been on a very strong June Jordan kick recently. Mm. Um, June Jordan was an activist and a poet and a playwright and truly one of the, like, most amazing humans of her generation and of many generations. And you cannot go wrong picking, like, any collection by her. I'm mostly, like, reading Black women poets. I was like, this is... It is an education that I never got. And uh, and it's something that, again, like, for me has been, like, very eye-opening and healing. I've been reading a lot of Audre Lorde poems. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with like all of her other work the poetry has never been... Uh, you mean like her essays? Yes. Like mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with her essays and when actually when you sent me the cancer journals when I was going through cancer <laughs> last year, <laughs> I, oh, every time I say it, I'm like, did we really do that? <laughs> we did that. Um, but anyway... I'm like, did I really send you the cancer journals? You did, you when said, you were? Yeah, listen, like, honestly, you sent me the cancer journals but you didn't send them to me because you were like, you have cancer, you're like, read this one specific thing. You like had annotated a thing and it was like, I needed to read it in the moment. So... <laughs> (laughs) We are not going to dismiss how amazing we were in that moment, okay? We beat cancer last year. Anyway, I am very familiar with, like, Audre Lorde's essays and, like, you know, her big nonfiction ideas. And I realized that for somebody who I studied so much and I know so much, I didn't know anything about her poetry. And Mm -hmm. it has really been amazing to to be like, oh, yeah, you're somebody who, like, you wrote op-eds and essays and criticism, but also, like, you were fully writing poems in here. And that has been... That's been very, very, very cool. On the contemporary front, I have really been enjoying, you know, friend of the podcast, Morgan Parker. Oh, yes. Who is, like, what a voice. Like, what a voice. I love Morgan's brain. Yeah, you're right. It is, like, a different kind of reading speed. I just find that, like, reading poetry keeps you... It like slows your brain down and it also like stretches your mind a lot because you're like, these words are doing a lot. <laughs> like what is happening? Right, here? like
1: one word in a poem lifting so yeah, much, doing so like, much work. You're,
0: you're like, you're like mm, we stand syntax, we stand <laughs> like we stand stanzas, we stand, we stand pros. What is going on here? It's like a lot. And I just find that like it's a different kind of reading, but also it opens your it opens your your mind and your heart to something different. Mm-hmm. And it's like when I think about like who people say like are the great American poets, I was like, actually, I'm going to tell you who. Like Lucille Clifton, a mm. fucking great American poet. Audre Lorde, Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez, Morgan Parker, Saeed Jones, like great mm-hmm. American poets. And so... It is both like sad to be like my age and be like, oh, I fully don't know anything about this. And also like amazing to be like, I can, I still have a lot to learn in life and it is delightful. Oh, yes to that. See you on the internet, boo boo. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet, on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kenesha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.